This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Welcome to the evening Bible study at Christchurch as we are studying the Acts of the Holy Spirit as we go through the book of Acts. Although from what I understand, the last couple of chapters actually haven't had much reference to the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so I'd like to say it's great to be back after my little jaunt away in the United States. And I'd like to thank uh, David and especially Neville for taking over and, and uh, continuing the studies. Really appreciate that. Um, before we begin, we will do a time-honored Christian tradition, which is... Pray! Of course we will. Is great. Any volunteers to pray before we begin? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather together now in this time safely and to seek your word, seek your will, and seek your very person. We thank you and ask for your guidance tonight in the opening of our eyes in Jesus' precious Amen. Amen. We are up to uh, the last verse of Acts 22, and then we'll do Acts 23. But before we do, uh, do that. Uh, we normally go through last week's material just so that we keep in context with what's actually going on in the stuff that we're handling today. So there is a handout and we will have a little read. This also helps those in podcast land, which ended up meeting a fair few people when I was in America that actually listened to us and uh, enjoy our study and enjoy the notes and things. So there you go. We're not alone, folks. So from chapter 21, 37, and for most of 22, we have Paul's speech to the dangerously agitated crowd at the northern end of the temple area. This doesn't end as Paul had hoped and is followed by an account of how he narrowly escapes being flogged by the Roman soldiers who had taken him into custody. Paul is about to be taken into the Antonia fortress bound to two Roman soldiers. Most people would have been happy to get away from such an angry crowd. But Paul sees it as an opportunity, so he asks the Roman commander for permission to address the crowd, and he does so speaking Greek. This, plus the behavior of the crowd, made the commander think that Paul was the Egyptian terrorist that had led a rebellion in the recent past. Josephus records how Felix, the Roman governor, with the Roman infantry, repelled this attack on Jerusalem, killed many of the rebels, or assassins, depending on your translation, and scattered the rest, but the Egyptian leader had evaded capture. Paul corrects the commander's mistake and is given permission to speak to the crowd. At least one of his bonds is released, so Paul is able to gestulate to the crowd to get their attention. The crowd then quiets down further when they hear Paul speaking their language, Hebrew. Paul was very likely fluent in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Aramaic was the language of commerce to the east, just as Greek was across the Roman Empire to the west. In Acts 21 and in 22, the phrase Hebraeus dialectos is usually translated as either Hebrew language dialect or Aramaic. In the past, the majority of academics and theologians would say that Jesus and the Jews of his day spoke and taught in Aramaic, but slowly more are accepting the evidence that Hebrew was actually the mother tongue of the Jews in the land of Israel. In verses 3 to 21, we are given the second of the three accounts in Acts of Paul's encounter with the risen Jesus on the Damascus Road. 
Given that none of the other major figures in the early church have their testimony even once, this becomes another of those curiosities that suggest Acts wasn't written, for example, merely to document the founding of the church and the spread of Christianity from Jerusalem to Rome. And it's been one of the things we have definitely noted as we have journeyed through uh, the, the book of Acts. There are several details that Paul includes on this occasion which are not in the account on, in Acts 9. These include that it happened at about noon when the sun was at its brightest, that Jesus referred to himself as Jesus of Nazareth, that his companions heard the sound of the voice but didn't understand what was said, and that Ananias refers to Jesus as the righteous one and told Paul to be baptized, calling on Jesus' name. Righteous one is a messianic reference that you see in Isaiah, and both Peter and Stephen also use this in, in Acts 3 and Acts 7. And it's also used in Hebrews uh, to describe Jesus as the righteous one, where God describes him as my righteous one. Paul skips over three years at the start of verse 17 to include a vision not recorded elsewhere that he had in the temple during a two-week visit to Jerusalem. In this address, Paul emphasizes his orthodox credentials, such as his education in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, a highly regarded sage of the house of Hillel. He says how he got permission from the high priest and the council of the elders, the Sanhedrin, to seek out the followers of Jesus, to imprison them and persecute them, even to the point of death. He also describes Ananias as a devout Jew, well spoken of by the Jews in Damascus. And it was Ananias that said it was the will of the God of our fathers that Paul should receive this revelation of the righteous one. With these details, Paul's intention is to create some common ground between himself and his hearers in the hope that some may see things from his point of view and be open to hear more about Jesus. Paul actually holds their attention until he mentions the word Gentiles. Uh, this reminds the crowd of the original accusation about him bringing a Gentile in to the restricted part of the temple. Their bloodthirsty anger is again triggered and Paul has to be brought in to the barracks for his own safety. The Roman Tribune is not much the, the wiser. On the one hand, there is a dangerously angry crowd, and on the other hand, a man who is educated and controlled, though with an unusual story. It doesn't add up. He's missing some important bits of information. And, as a military man, the way to ex extract that was by flogging. This was a form of torture, and sometimes it was so severe that the victim died from it. Once it's clear that he's about to be flogged, Paul reveals that he is a Roman citizen. A similar situation happened in Philippi in Acts 16. The tribune reacts quickly to release Paul because Roman law forbade the flogging of a Roman citizen without a hearing or a formal sentence. The tribune then reveals that he purchased his citizenship for a large sum. Citizenship was not for sale, but it's known that in the time of Emperor Claudius, people could pay to have their names put forward for consideration. It's normal practice for the new citizen to take the emperor's name as their Roman name, which explains the tribune's name, Claudius Lysus. Right. So, some pretty good notes there. Thanks. So let's turn to uh, Acts 22.30, and then we'll read the whole chapter of 23. And for those who haven't been here before, how do we do it? We just go around the table reading one verse at a time. Doesn't matter your version, really doesn't. Certainly doesn't matter the language, because we can follow along. I'm pretty sure God speaks it. 
All right. The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you seeking to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck? And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God high, high priest. Then said Paul, I was not brethren that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Now, when Paul perceived the one part were Sadducee and the other Pharisee, he cried out, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And there arose a great, great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man. But if spirit or angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And when the dissension became violent and the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn, torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him to the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified upon me in Jerusalem. <coughs> You must also testify in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had uh, formed this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the chief captain and said, Paul, prisoner, calls me unto him and prayed, prayed me to bring this young man unto thee who had something to say unto me. Then the other, then the chief captain took him by the hand and went with him aside <coughs> privately and asked him, What is that thou hast to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But you know, be persuaded by them, 
for more than 40 of them, of their men are lying in a in an ambush for him, who have bound themselves by one hour, neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. <coughs> the commander dismissed the young man with this warning, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. And he called unto him two centuries, saying, Make ready two hundred soldiers to go to Brasilia, and horsemen three score and ten, and spearmen two hundred in the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride to bring him safely to Felix the governor. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to the Excellency, the Governor Felix, greetings. Unless this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, coming with the troops, I, re I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. On the morrow, they left the horsemen to go with him and returned to the castle. When they came to Caesarea and delivered the epistle to the governor, presented Paul also before them. When the governor read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's territory. Awesome. Okay. So, um, on a surface reading, is there anything there that uh, you notice for the very first time? I often discover that uh, when I read the Bible, new verses have been added there during the night uh, that I've never, I've never noticed there before. Sometimes, even while I'm reading them in church, it's a bit scary. <laughs> Seeing this interplay uh, with the high priest, it occurred to me that I tend that now to think that Paul was playing a little game. Yeah. <laughs> that he knew very well who the high priest was, but he innerly probably strongly objected to the label God's high priest. Yeah, it could do. Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I find the last couple of chapters of Acts. I mean, things just don't seem to be working out for the poor guy. And uh, not the way that perhaps he would have liked, I'm pretty sure. And then I look at uh, our own situation. Nothing ever seems to go the way it's supposed to go. It just seems to be, as they say, one giant balagan after another. And yet somehow God still works. Yes, and then you just sort of see that um, through here. Um, and also, I also think Paul's, you know, one of those guys that uh, when it was time to, uh, to have a confrontation, he, um, well, he didn't, have, didn't rush to avoid it. Yeah. 
Jewish. <laughs> Could be, yeah. Yeah, I remember when reading this text uh, yesterday, I was like, oh my gosh, Paul has a sister. I don't know how many times I read this and go, oh yeah, that's right, and then completely forget. <laughs> and not only that, she's married with kids. Yeah. Wonder what's going on in their family. All right, let's... Um, so in, in, uh, in verse 30 of 22, so our tribune needs to find out a little more information about uh, the charges. He doesn't quite understand what's going on. And uh, the way that he's going to do it is now no longer going to be a flogging, which would have been his preferred way probably. Um, he's going to uh, request, or in this case order, that the Sanhedrin come and explain uh, the charge. So this is not technically a trial. Sanhedrin might think that it is, but it is not. This is actually a uh, fact-finding information, and it's under the auspices uh, of the Roman himself. So we end up with uh, another assemblage back on the Temple Mountain uh, in the area of the Sanhedrin. So you, there's a little map of the temple right here. A lot of this action is occurring. Anyone who wants to have a look at the map? In the northern section between the Antonio Fortress, the little plaza that's just in front of the Antonio Fortress, and I think the map does include where the Sanhedrin meets, does it? Okay, the, the Sanhedrin, as I understand it, they, they used to meet in the Chamber of Stone. Yeah. You know, it's still now, it's, uh, um, but then later on, I think it's from about 1830, they actually moved it. That's right, yeah. 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 So there's a couple of areas where it depends on where they, but they, where they met. Yes, yeah, so I think you, in this situation, they would be meeting in this, in the building mm -hmm. on the south side. So, um, because there was this plot to ambush, or I wonder whether they were walking through the streets rather Hmm. Going from the Antonia Fortress around the outside steps. You know, up the, up the Robinson's yep. steps. Yep. So yeah, along the western wall. Yeah. Yeah. Possible. Yeah. The um the Paul's citizenship is never explained how he got it. Uh it doesn't like no one knows how his family got it. Uh, and so there's, there's several theories. Um, one is that if his father was a tent maker, that is um, teaching your son a trade, usually the one that you know, and, if, and uh, if he is a leather worker and a tent maker, and he in Tarsus, then the citizenry would be supplying the local army with tents and um, leather work and stuff, then doing such a good thing for an army, particularly when it's engaged in a civil war, with places like Mark Antony and, uh, and Octavian, then the winner would bestow citizenship on those who helped him. And so it's possible that's been paid one way. Or it could just be that they paid <laughs> somewhere along the line. Am I mistaken? Doesn't it say somewhere when uh, someone says I paid for this that he's some freeborn? It's the, it's the Tribune. Yeah. Yeah, that's yes. the end of um, the process I was freeborn. Yes. yes, it means that his father created the citizenship, or grandfather, but Paul himself 
enters into a family that's freeborn. That is, that's complete citizen, citizenship. Now, citizens actually have obligations to the empire. So, as, at the same time as, as Paul can, can ask for um, uh, the benefits of being a citizen, the empire requires its citizens to do stuff. What do you think citizens have to do for their empire? Pay taxes. Pay taxes. <laughs> yeah. What else? No, it's like us serving the military. Or yep, serving the military. <laughs> Support the army. Yep. And so, um, uh, as Paul is probably growing up in his life, he probably had to do things that would have had to have served if the, if the local army needed needed it. They don't always need it, of course. But had they have needed it, he would have had to have obliged as a citizen, whether that be supply the army with uh, materials or even go and serve in a camp somewhere and uh, take care of it. So um, remember, what does uh, Jesus say to, to, to other Jewish people? If the Roman comes and asks you to do something, what do you do? You do it. You do it. So they had like these obligations, and then you just double it. Okay? Um, you do not have to worship their gods. So most of the Jews in Rome were citizens and were never required to, to worship the Lord, uh, worship Caesar. Same with uh, people like Philo of Alexandria. So while he writes lots of documentation, he himself is also a Roman citizen in Alexandria and he never had to um, give up his gods and worship, worship a pagan god. So Paul, by, even though he's a citizen, is under no obligation to serve uh, the Roman gods, but he is under an obligation to serve the army. Okay. All right, so he's brought before the Sanhedrin. Now what do people's uh, translations have for verse 1 of 22? How, what's Paul's reaction? I've just got, he looks straight. <laughs> Everybody's got that? Mine says intently. Intently, yes. Mine says looking earnestly. Earnestly? Okay. Aria, what, is there any help there on... Uh, yeah? What does it mean? Is he glaring at him? No. No? Absorbing him intently. He's intently, so he's... Um, okay. Yeah. And uh, so he, he... What is he looking at, do you think? What do you think he's seeing? What do you think he's noticing? He's checking out the party breakdown here. Yep. He's being very clever. He's getting the lay of the land. So uh, Sanhedrin is made up of which two parties? Mainly Sanhedrin, uh, Sadducees and? Yes, not the only ones, but they are the big ones. And of course, who else is there? Got the high priest. High priest and the high priest's little officials. Yep. And um, if you were standing in front of the high priest, that's an audacious group, what would be the normal standard way of addressing such a group? What do you think? Um, very reverent. Yes, you would say something formal. Yeah. yeah. But what does he say? Brothers. Yeah. Says men and brethren. Says men and brethren. Okay, brothers. That are few. Okay. Achi. Yeah. Achim, right? He's um, straight away, he's not saying, he's saying, hey, I'm actually one of you guys. You know? um, which is a very interesting thing that he does. Okay. Um, now, notice that Paul's speech here is going to be a little different to um, uh, Stephen in the book of Acts 6. So when Stephen's in front of the Sanhedrin, he just goes on the offensive. 
Paul's going to be a little played a little differently. Verse 2 says Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strap him on the mouth. Was that because he had been forward and you know had not addressed that's a, them? That's a good question. That they could be. It could be that Paul um, looks at his group in front of him, starts working out the different parties, starts you know brains ticking over. How am I going to do this? And then he starts by saying something very. Um, I'm equal with you. I said, Achim, how are you doing? You know, let's, let's sit and reason together. And uh, none of this co-towering, there's no licking their sandals or um, how are you doing, Your Honor, and bowing his head, uh, which may, may have other um, lesser-born men might have done, but not this one. When he's addressing the crowd on the Temple Mount in the previous chapter, he says, brothers and fathers, which is more respectful. I mean, that's a reasonable way to address uh, a large crowd, where then there will be people older than you. Yeah. But that the fathers is absent here. Respectful element. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So he says, okay, my brothers, perhaps this is a disrespect, not sure, or equal. He says something very interesting. I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Is that true? <laughs> what do you think? What do you think he means by that? Has that been a good Jew until this day? Until this day. What's the background of Paul? He was a Pharisee. He's a Pharisee, yes. And he was persecuting and imprisoning people who were believers. Yes. So does that fit with this sentence? Well, from their point of view. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's think about it. Have a look at. It. Well, kind of yes and no. I mean, this mm-hmm. is, his conscience was uh, kind of badly awry when he was tracking down the believers, and uh, got sorted out, and then he did a turnaround. Yes. He actually thought he was right. Yeah. So he could actually say, "I'm good conscience. I have actually been doing my duty. I was even on your side for a while." Okay, so I've been doing my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. All right, so that's his opening address. And something so incensed our high priest then. And we're not 100% sure what the information is not listed. Yep? Um, I wonder if he didn't call them fathers because at this time I'm thinking he's probably about 60 at least in my thinking. And, uh, you know, once you get older, you, you kind of can see them as peers, not <laughs> really... You know, you're they're equal or whatever. You know, so he doesn't feel the need maybe to address them that way. Maybe I'm not sure, but whatever it was, uh, Ananias is uh, upset about something, um, and so Ananias orders the one standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. All right. Why do you think you would strike him on the mouth? To shut him up. They didn't like what came out of it. So they didn't like what came out of it, so they smack him. Yeah. So in the uh, biblical text, in, in terms of um, things being put on mouths, any biblical references that you can think of? Normally angels strike you on the mouth. Yeah. When you go through various accounts in the Bible, uh, they'll take take coals, hot coals, and where do they put them? 
on your lips. Okay, there's something about the mouth and uh, and angelic beings um, that uh, people either shut up their mouths or they open up their mouths, um, uh, usually with a, with an angelic help. And uh, in a lot of the midrashim or uh, Jewish stories, which you find around this time period, they often will have uh, angelic a angels come over and smack them. So, for example, when you have uh, Midrash or Jewish commentary in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar will say something, and he'll say something like, um, I see uh, one like a son of God walking around in the furnace with these uh, three other guys, and an angel will come down and smack him and go, yeah, he, God doesn't have a son. Right? These kinds of uh, silly things, you know, where you... Um, but that's always an angelic uh, action of smacking you on the mouth. So they direct, they direct uh, him to do the same thing as opposed to smacking him on the shoulder or hitting him with a stick or a cane or whacking his leg. It's uh, always going to be on the mouth. And then Paul says to him, what is, uh, someone read um, verse 3. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you wouldn't need to be struck. Awesome. All right. Yeah, I like the way you read it too. But we don't know how the tone was for how Paul. Could be that he turns around and says, how dare you? That sort of, you know. Greta Thunberg sort of uh, emphasis, okay? Or he could have said something else. He just said, you know, can't really do that. Um, you're judging me according to the law, but but you're acting contrary to the very law itself. And uh, which law would he actually be referring to? Do you think there actually isn't a piece of the Torah that says you can't do this? Um, although there is um, technically technically a psalm that's, that could be do this. Psalm 94 verse 23. Uh, anyone want to read that? Psalm 94 23. Read it out really loud so the uh, podcast can hear it. Yep, Psalm 94 verse 23. Here we bring back from them their iniquity and whip them out for their wickedness wickedness the Lord of God will whip them out okay what's another version what version are you reading it is 94 20. yeah yeah what version of the Bible oh ESV ESV anyone got a different uh, translation Verse 23 but the Lord had been my defense no it's 22 23. Oops, sorry. He has he has brought on them their own iniquities. Right. And they shall cut them off in their own wickedness. The Lord our God shall cut them off. Okay. The um the the you get judged according to your own iniquity, right? But what has he done? He's done nothing. And yet they've given him a, a, a punishment. So they've punished him without actually giving him. So the, who's going to enact vengeance against them? God. 
What is the actual end of our little hero, Ananias? Does anyone know? Our little high priest who has ordered this smacking of uh, Paul? Anyone know? Any, do, you, do you know? What happens to him? Um, when the rebellion arises in about in, in maybe nine years' time, yeah. AD 66, he and his brother are hiding somewhere and they just get it from the Romans. They're, they're dead. Yeah. The, um, they actually get killed by, Ju- by Jewish zealots. So the, the, re- the rebellion starts, the rebellion breaks out, and all those who are viewed as um, collaborating with the Roman authorities, so we kill all the Romans first, basically recapture Jerusalem, there's no more uh, Romans, we then, base, we then run around and look for all the collaborators. And these guys knew that they were in, in for it, so they were hiding. They get caught by a guy called Matthias and then, uh, and then, and then, and then slaughtered. Um, and, you know, in a rather gruesome way, and so they get what's coming to them. So he says, uh, "We don't know his tone. God will strike you," which is technically true, although he did it through the actions of somebody called Matthew. You whitewashed wall. Well, my gosh, that sounds horrible, doesn't it? Where would where would that sort of insult come from? Jesus. <laughs> yeah, he also used this uh, this phrase. Yeah, you're a whitewash too. Okay. Any, uh, any, I mean, it, but it was actually it's, it's one of those uh, things that you find in Ezekiel uh, in the prophets, Ezekiel 13, 10 to 16. Someone want to read that one? Again, out loud for the um, podcast land. This sort of idea of of walls being whitewashed uh, and their fragility. So, Exodus 13, 10 to 16. Oh, sorry, Ezekiel. Hey, let's go. Yeah. Still prophetic, okay? <laughs> I'll read it. Okay, from verse 10. Precisely because they have misled my people, saying peace, when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, a great hailstones, will fall, and a stormy wind break out. And when the wall falls, it will, it, will it not be said to you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out of my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger, and great hailstones in wrath, to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you smeared with whitewash, and bring it down to the ground, so that its foundations will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Therefore, I will spend my wrath upon the wall, and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash, and I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who smeared it. The prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord. There you go. So you got a very strong prophetic voice that uh, something that's false, something that's made, that's bad, that's made to look good, you know, uh, something that's completely untrue, uh, that's uh, telling a lie to people. And, uh, and, and it's, it's called the, the whitewashed wall, or the whitewashed tomb, or something like that. Uh, Jesus uses it, and Paul uses it here, so it's actually quite an insult. 
you're looking at uh, the high priest and you're saying, you know, you just, you, you, everything about you is false. And uh, you look good. I mean, you look great. I mean, Josephus talks about, uh, does a little description about Ananias, that um, he was really loved by the people. Because he used to um, you know, um, give lots of money away. Except that Josephus forgot to mention how he got that money. By extorting a whole bunch of other people. That he would actually in, um, uh, tax a lot of his own brothers and sisters, that is priests, who would end up starving. Some of them even starving to death. So that he could have this money, so that he could bribe uh, Roman officials and bribe high-ranking people and, and, and make himself look really good in front of the people. And uh, a lot of people knew. And, uh, and Paul had a little go at them. Maybe he could see this already when he was seizing that, sizing them up at the start. He sort of realized, oh, I know this character. This guy's a bad seed. Oh, I can't wait to have a go at him. And, uh, and he gets his chance. But the whitewashed wall will fall. It will come down. God's going to do it. And anybody who's with him, anybody who's propping this guy up, uh, is also going down. So, God will strike this one, the whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Okay. Um, and then, as this little tete-a-tete's going along, someone stands by and says, You dare insult God's high priest? Uh, well, yeah. But, of course, Paul's also said at the start of his defense, what's he said? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> he says, look, up until this day, my conscience is clear according to the law. I haven't broken the law. Except that I've now just insulted the high priest to his face, okay? Right? And, uh, but then they say, you've just insulted the high priest. So what's his defense? Oh, I didn't know. Oh, I didn't know. Oops. Okay. It sounds like school. Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. And um, because there is, there is, there is actually a, um, a, a, one of the commandments, one of the 613 laws, which you see in Exodus uh, 22, 28, which describes that you're not allowed to insult God or the rulers, your rulers. It's worse than that. It's a curse. Oh, yeah. Is that what it says? Oh, yeah. Okay. So you can't curse. Right, the, the, your leaders, and uh, which which is what he's just done, okay, um, and uh, Paul replies, brothers, I did not realize he was the high priest, and then he quotes the actual verse, and how does he go about it? He says, for it is written. You know, notice that when people quote Bible, they never say. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, it says this, okay? Yeah, why don't they say that? Because there were no chapters and verses. All they say, just very blankly, is, it is written. Okay, Somewhere on this giant scroll, you'll find it, okay? In the middle. And uh, so, it is written, do not speak evil about the, the ruler of your people, or do not curse, uh, as it literally says. All right. Uh, and so things are not going well uh, in terms of Paul's defense. And I don't know if our centurion or tribune is actually getting any new information. Right? Um, you have no idea what this guy, because I'm, I'm assuming he's being translated. Like someone's whispering is he the actual translation of what's going on. And um, it's not 
not uh, there's no new information for our for our centurion. So Paul in verse six, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, so he's got he's realized the divide. Uh, suddenly blurts out, "My brothers, once again, Achim, okay? I'm I'm part of you guys. Okay, I am a Pharisee." What is the son of a Pharisee? Okay. What did he not say? If you follow her, you should. He, he, say I was he doesn't say I was. Ah, yes. right. He doesn't say um, I, I was a Pharisee right up until the Damascus experience when I saw a blinding light and heard some guy speak to me in Hebrew. Okay. He doesn't say that. He says I am. So he's been... He's been uh, um, the helping out as part of the leadership of a church in Antioch. He's been traveling around Asia Minor. He's been to Greece and argued with people all over the map. He's been beaten up, thrown around, uh, chased. He's had dreams and visions. And now he stands in Jerusalem and he still says, I am a... Okay. So, you know, sometimes we look at Pharisees in the, in the Gospels and we think, oh, these guys are terrible. You know, they become the straw men that we like to throw sticks at. But uh, uh, Paul seems to think it's okay. What do you think some of the reasons were, going back a verse, that he didn't, um, he said, I didn't know, maybe his bad eyesight, you know, at Galatians, he, he kind of leaves the impression he doesn't have good eyesight. Maybe he doesn't recognize this guy as the high priest. Maybe, maybe his intent looking at them is, is basically he's like, oh my gosh, I can't see that. <laughs> maybe. Right. Would he be, would he be dressed accordingly? The high priest? Yeah. I would assume so, but I don't, it doesn't, the, the, yeah, yeah. the garb's not actually mentioned. We don't even know what Paul's wearing, okay? Um, I would assume that the high priest is very easy to note. Very, very because, nice. Yeah, but I could be wrong. No, I think it's a combination of what you say, Jimmy, that uh, his eyesight wasn't that good, at least you know, for maybe picking out who's who. And he hadn't been around for, for quite a while. I mean, he's, um, and he didn't tend to spend very long in Jerusalem when he was there um, in odd visits. So you know, his last trip was five years, so he really hasn't been in Jerusalem that much. Could it also be that he doesn't recognize this guy as the high priest? I mean, to me, I mean, I've left a, a religious group, but I still know those people really well, and I hear enough to where I still, you know, if he comes into Jerusalem, sure, he catches up on the news or something. Um, yeah, he probably he shows up in Jerusalem. Hey, who's the high priest? I don't know. Oh, that idiot? Is yeah. he still in charge? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> maybe there's a debate, and he doesn't write, maybe, you know, said sarcastically. You know. It's possible. I wonder it's the same thing, and also... Um, I recently heard that you had, you had all of these non-Levitical people assuming the offices of priests who really weren't entitled to. Was he one of these? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So that could be a nice sarcastic way of yeah. saying. This is still this is still the 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 last residue of the uh -huh. Maccabean. Right. Issue that they did when they got control of the He's temple. He's a non-Zadokian. He's non-Zadokian. Yep. Yeah. But the, by name, this is the same guy who, with Caiaphas, was around at Jesus' trial. 
Yeah. Paul would absolutely have known about all about these people. These people. The whole family, the kid, the food, Yeah. He had a little older, a little whatever, but the, the same folks. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, remember when you know, when uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples, he says, now don't, don't be scared um, when you're brought in front of Know, councils and sages, because you know the spirit will tell you what to what to say. Do you think the spirit's telling Paul what to say here? Yes. Yeah. Well, absolutely. You think? <laughs> yeah. So when the spirit tells us to to speak, it's not always flowery words, is it? Sometimes it can be quite direct. Yes. And Stephen was quite direct at the end of his talk when he was quoting from Isaiah. Yeah. The Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. Yeah. Yeah, that was definitely a challenge. Yeah, I mean, Stephen's speech is very different to Paul's here. I mean, um, uh, although if the, the Romans weren't there, both would end up in the same way. If we recall, Paul even got his commission to Damascus from these very people. Oh, I didn't think of that. That's true. Yes. Because, yes. That's right, because Paul, as a um, disciple of uh, Gamaliel, Gam Gamaliel says, "Don't attack these people." He, he appears with himself and have to have been a member of the Sanhedrin as well. Yep. And cast a vote in uh, yep. condemnation of the believers. That's right. And so when the when the Sanhedrin depart, Paul switches his allegiance and stops. I mean, even though he says, "I am a Pharisee," starts to side with the more violent part of the Sanhedrin and then takes uh, letters of recommendation and orders from them. So yeah, he probably knows some of these guys. And maybe that's the reason why I call them a uh, brothers. Hey brothers, remember remember me? <laughs> yeah, remember that letter you got? I've actually still got it, you know? <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, Paul knows that there's got this group in front of them and he says, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I am at present tense. And I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, yes. That is the gospel, which is absolutely fantastic. That Jesus is alive, and because he's alive, we will be too. And, uh, and, and this is a very clever tactic by Paul. Mm -hmm. And here yeah. comes the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Because he knew that there was Sunset and Pharisee. Yeah. And then... He persuaded those Pharisees because one of them was offending him. Like, what if this man saw angel or some angel talk to him? Yeah. And they start. Uh, they start fighting on themselves. And that yeah. same night, the Lord told him to take courage because are you witness in Jerusalem, you got to win in Rome. Yeah. So the Lord is yeah. the Now the, these Pharisees aren't the same ones as the ones we see in Acts 15. Because in the Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem, of the believers, it says, the party of the Pharisees said this. So Pharisees actually, are, some Pharisees are part of the Jesus movement and still identify as Pharisees. Okay, so it's not a homogenous group, just like Christianity is not a homogenous group, or anything really. Um, but yeah, so... Very clever tactic by Paul, probably under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, although it doesn't say so. He had already done virtually the same thing on the Areopagus. Yeah. Where he was addressing the mixed crowd of Stoics and... Epicureans, Epicureans that's yeah. right. Yeah, he, he very clever. He said, 
Brother Stoics, I'm here on trial for the resurrection of the dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He goes, gee, it worked for them. It's going to work for me here. Yeah. Yeah. Just stick with what you know, people. And it works. A huge uproar. All right? Dispute breaks out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, and the assembly was divided. Not that they're ignoring Paul, but they're certainly having now a big go at each other. And then uh, in verse 8, you get this little caveat. Luke seems to need to add, knowing that his audience most likely is now no longer uh, uh, Jewish and or familiar with this. He has to add that the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits. Um, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Now, I don't know enough about Sadducean theology, um, uh, except that they did take a literal reading of the Bible, and they had a very dim view of many of the prophetic books. But even on a literal reading of the Bible, uh, angels appear in the Torah all the time. And so I'm not 100% sure why this is added here, but maybe they just ignored that bit and had a different interpretation of what an, uh, an, uh, an angel was. Uh, angels, as angels, as we understand them, though, are, are rare in the, in the Old Testament. There's lots of messengers, but not very few explicit angelic uh, visitors as we think of them today. Sure. I mean, Hagar gets one. And the canon was not as well developed, for example. That's also true. Daniel. Yeah. Was it in? Was it out? It was not the Torah. Was yeah. It, it was a name. That's right. Uh, yeah, but you have you have an angel uh, in Genesis, several angels in Genesis with Abraham and Hagar, yes. and uh, and as Malach as as angel. But anyway, that's true. There are not many of them, but they are there. But they because they dismissed they didn't dismiss prophetic books. That's not true. They just didn't interpret them in the same way as his other group was doing it. Right? So they weren't considering it as. Um, as, uh, as they considered it sacred, but not as, as sacred as, as, as we might. They were over enthusiastic believers in Thailand. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they, it's debatable as to ex exactly what they thought the afterlife was. Right? So they, they didn't think that the soul would, would end up in a new body per se, but they didn't, also didn't think that souls just disappeared, although some people think they did. Um, and so the Pharisees, yes, acknowledge all of this. They acknowledged uh, an oral tradition. They acknowledged uh, angels and spirits. They acknowledged that there was communication between this world and that world, um, and in and in a resurrection that the soul would move on into another into another body. Shalom. So there is a great uproar, and uh, then we introduced to this thing called teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously we find nothing wrong with this man so uh, if we're having a vote here he's probably going to get off um, they said what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him this is the same argument that Gamliel said if, if this guy really is talking to heaven then we don't want to be against heaven so we won't do anything. Has how do how do we in our modern period, in our modern church setting, is is there anything that is very uh, reminiscent or anything that's reflective from of what what that these guys say in our community? I'll throw out one. 
Good. John? The testing of spirits, you don't just believe everything everyone tells you. Okay, we, we know that there's a scripture that tells us to test the spirits. Uh, use, the, use the written word as a standard to start with anyway. Right. In terms of our community setting though, does that occur very often? Not enough. Yeah, I would have to agree, not enough. Not enough. Is that um, you know, we often get, especially here, but there are other places too, people declare words of Lord mm -hmm. out loud. Thus saith the Lord. And we, as a community, mostly quite reticent to challenge such a thing. Why? Maybe we don't like confrontation. Maybe we think, if it is from God, I don't want to fight it. Just like these guys. Maybe we don't know how to handle such things. Maybe we don't know what it means to test the spirits. Um, but in this case, Paul said, you know, he's described his uh, visitation from heaven. And the group of the Pharisees say, well, this guy probably has heard from heaven. We're not touching him. But we in, in at go for it. Uh, I might disagree a little bit. I think we do test, um, you know, if it comes down to an essential, you know, Jesus is divine or the resurrection, I think we would, you know, probably uh, oppose that teaching. I think that a lot of us, probably, maybe all of us would agree that there are areas where we can allow for different interpretations and so we don't speak up in those instances. But yeah, I mean, in various interpretations. To, yeah, when it comes to the basics, that there are some things that we don't give any ground on. You know, we, we think this is where we stand. And, okay. and, uh, so we hear a lot of people here say, you know, the Lord told me this, the Lord said this, and I've heard no one challenge them. <clears throat> if you go through the New Testament, and you scrutinize all verses in the epistle. There is a first John chapter four verse one. We know what he said, test every spirit. And then in verse four he said there's the spirit of deceitfulness, yes. verse two. And then in first Thessalonians chapter five verse nineteen he said, Do not despise prophesy prophecies, but test everything. And that verse uh, sorry word in in Greek and an acrino documento it means scrutinize everything but what having the gospel as a point of reference so every prophecy every word that we heard and it's happening here so much from people we need to take the gospel and see if, if the heart of that word agree. is not the gospel there's no for christ yeah but i agree if that word doesn't drive you or give you yeah next or be yeah. more desire of the word of God of Christ Agreed. I just spent five weeks in America I went to a lot of different churches in four different states and in just about every one of them people got up shared all kinds of stuff no one said anything and so you said no one no there's no challenges there's no oh, I'm sure about that it's just, just what they do and um, so I mean you think it's it's something maybe it's part of our culture maybe we're polite maybe we don't know how to do this thing i mean none of them were saying jesus is not god that's not what they were saying and notice here's the one thing i think is really hilarious 
is um, people, when they have a word of the Lord and a prophecy, it's never against the leadership of the church. Have you noticed that? No, no one ever stands up in the middle of a church and says, I've got a word from the Lord. Bad preacher. <laughs> Except when you pick up the prophets here, that's all they say. <laughs> They're always criticizing the leadership of the community. You know, bad shepherds, bad shepherds, you're false, you're too, you're, you're too, you're. and yet when you get into prophecies of the modern period, nothing ever said against the leadership, which leads me to be slightly sceptical. Anyway, um, the point is for our text here is that uh, Paul's very clever. We get a little discussion. It's all gone to heck. And uh, the dispute in verse uh, 10 says the dispute became so violent. So these guys are now getting um, into fisticuffs, bashing each other, okay, uh, that the commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces. Oh my gosh. And, um, and, and that might seem like a crazy situation, but we've actually seen it here in Israel a few times. Um, different denominations can get quite violent and the police have to be called to stop a, a fight. Um, at the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Yes, Church of the Holy Sepulchre is one of the big ones, yes. <laughs> and, On a particular day of the year, yeah. which is the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter, yes. there has been known to be um, not just pushing and shoving, but some, some worse stuff. Yes, yes. Uh, and my favourite, of my absolute favourite, has been the YouTube video of the Church of the Nativity. Where you... The church, in the Church of the Nativity... You had an altercation between Greeks, Armenians, and Catholics, and somebody had superimposed lightsabers because they were throwing brooms and fighting with brooms with each other. So he took the brooms away and put lightsabers in. It's absolutely brilliant. And you see monks bashing each other with lightsabers, and when the police come, they've got red lightsabers. <laughs> so well done. Okay, unfortunately, we shouldn't be laughing because it's kind of sad. Okay, but uh, you can, but here, here you have it too. They're all getting quite violent. You have no, we have no clue what the, the Romans are thinking. They're probably thinking, oh my gosh, this is obviously why we conquered these people. It was so easy. They're too busy fighting each other. Um, but uh, he has to order his troops in and uh, take Paul away. And he takes them back to the barracks, which I'm going to assume is the Antonia Fortress. Yes. Yeah. So they, they get him through. Now here's this interesting little verse. Okay, verse 11. The following night, okay, who shows up? The Lord. Right. The Lord stood near Paul and says, Take courage. Now, why would he have to say such a thing? Yeah. What do you think is going through Paul's mind right about now? Yeah, where's this all going? It's not working out the way I think. Yeah. Perhaps, perhaps. Okay, this could be, could be. You know, he's had some incredible successes down there in, in Turkey and in Greece. Yes. And yet here he is in Jerusalem and it's just not quite working out the way he thought. Okay. So the Lord shows up. How has Paul received visions before? We've had a blinding light, which was the Lord. He's had dreams. Okay, and he's and he's seen visions. Okay. 
right? And, uh, and, and what else has occurred? He was transported to the third heaven. Well, uh, probably, but not to, in this text, in, in, in Acts. Agabo, the, Agabo, the prophet told him, going to, he prophesied, you're going the birth of this man when he was tried before Jerusalem. Ah, right, yep. Yeah. The Holy Spirit in Antioch spoke, remember, and said, select these men to me. Right? Yeah. So, lots of different ways to communicate to Paul. Okay? There never seems to be one way. It's never the same way. And so, I don't know why the book of Acts does it that way, except it tells us don't make a formula. Right? Be very careful when trying to make a formula and say, this is the only way it seems to work when getting a voice from heaven. In this case, what could God have done for Paul? Could have sent a angel. Could have had the Holy Spirit talk to him. Could have had another dream. He's had these before. And he seems to have recognized them and got them right. But for some reason, the Lord himself feels that he needs to show up. Okay, which is actually kind of comforting, isn't it? Don't you think? Yeah. He could have sent an angel, but does it himself. I uh, <clears throat> I know at night sometimes if you're alone, that's the when you feel the loneliest and mm. most frightened as well. And so I think it's appropriate that probably all of us have felt this at one time or another. But you know, we all remember what Paul says to Timothy. We talk about it a lot. He told him not not, not to be timid. But Paul himself was encouraged by the Lord several times to not be, you might say, timid. Mm -hmm. You remember at Corinth, the Lord appeared to him and said, don't be afraid, you know, nobody's going to hurt you. And, and uh, here I think he's telling him again. Yeah, because he wanted to leave. Yeah. And, Paul, and the, the, the Lord just said, no, 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 don't. I've got some people here. And so he ends up staying a year and a half. <laughs> and we can, put, we can put these people up on pedestals like they never had any doubts or fears or depressions and yet they did and we see that paul's very you yep. know he's very human he's just like us that's right this is even after all the good positive things that have happened he's had miracles right okay he's done miracles well elijah right after a great contest victory, yes. what does he do he runs right, he's right. Scared yeah, that's right yeah. and that i think is a good lesson for us because sometimes, you know, uh, we, we might think, you know, we've done something very powerful for the Lord. We say, Nothing can stop us now. You know, I'm going to uh, be careful. Yes. Yeah. Um. Verse 10 talks about this is the fourth time that Paul has to be rescued and taken back to the barracks. You know, the Romans <laughs> have to intervene. And he's thinking, you know, this is, how, how can this go on? You know, yeah. It's going to It's not going to end well for me. Yeah. And people are going to get injured and it's going to go from bad to worse so i think that was probably you know feeling that this happened again mm -hmm. the lord uh, spoke to him because he also watched this occur when stephen was tried so he's seen this crowd get angry he's seen what they do when they want to and they when they when they're gunning for blood and they had had uh had crushed uh, stephen and he had watched the whole thing so yes Jesus shows up, which is really nice. Yep. And Gabriel. regarding to the, that the Lord stood by his, by his side. Yes. I think this man, the Lord, mighty God, Jesus, but also he was man. And in Gethsemane, he, he knows, like the Lord knows. 
like he feels and he knows the fear that Paul that Saul had. But also, if you remember in Gethsemane when he was sweating blood, an angel appeared, but he was so his anguish was so deep that he he rejected that angel and he kept praying with more fears, like with more fer more fervent, more fervent, yeah. Fervent. And he said, "All right, there is an angel from God, but I prefer to be fighting this fight through prayer to my Almighty Father." So the Lord He knows how Paul's feel because. Yeah, he's courageous, Paul. Yes. But he was like, I'm going to die tomorrow, maybe. And the Lord said, hey, I am with you. And, yeah, and what does, actually, what does Jesus say? Yeah. He says, take courage. It's always wonderful to hear. Um, As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. All right, cool. So what does Jesus not tell him? How long it would take. How long it's going to take, yeah. How is he going to get there? How he's going to get there? What's going to happen between now and Rome? Uh, shipwreck, snake bite, uh, several beatings, near death. So isn't that wonderful? You know, the Lord told me to come to Jerusalem. Oh, yeah. And what else happened? <laughs> How long was it supposed to be? Was it instantaneous? Um, sometimes we think that when the Lord tells us something. Right now. Right now. I mean, the Lord has obviously been going, working quickly through history. He's been speeding up, right? 430 years he kept Israel in Egypt before he decided time to bring them out. But now when the Lord seems to do something, it's, it's instantaneous. Yet we see that perhaps that is not true. And so, yes, Paul will get to Rome. Yes, he will testify exactly as Jesus says. But he doesn't give you all the story. Which is probably a good lesson for us, I think. Yes, it is. Actually, this is true. This is true. Yes. So, you know, perhaps you wonder if he was thinking that as the ship was sinking. You know, like, but you told me, blah blah blah. blah. Okay. But uh, anyway, all right. So you will testify in Rome. Doesn't give you the time. It's going to be another two years or so before he gets there. All right, the next morning, we actually get this, this plot. Okay, uh, the Jews, and when it says the Jews, how many are we talking about here? 40. Yes. So, you know, when, when, the, when, the Turk, when the text says the Jews, they don't mean, oh my gosh, the whole nation of Israel is up against. Uh, right? It's not that many. Okay, they were forming a conspiracy, and they uh, bound themselves with a, with a an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. So some Jews want to kill Paul. Some Jews want to keep him alive. Mm -hmm. right? So it's a split, split group here. However, there's probably more people who want to keep him alive than kill him. So there's more than 40 men who were involved in this plot. Uh, they went to the chief priests and the elders. So who do, do they not go to? They don't go to the Pharisees. <laughs> Okay, they're obviously not going to go have a chat with Gamaliel and his little, his little buddies. Okay, uh, they go to the, uh, the, the corrupt ones. And we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Okay, now what, what does... Um, How interesting, they're going to all the wrong people, but they're going to now make a, a, as if they're doing some spiritual thing and take an oath. That's right, we're going to make an oath before God to commit murder, which is also in, by God you're not supposed to do. So the whole thing is just wrong on so many levels. This makes about 50 people with oaths in this, in this whole Jerusalem culture, and in the end, not one of them was supposed to carry through. Yes, yes. 
Yeah, Earth Central, not one worked out. Yeah. Not including Paul's. Yes. They went to the chief beast and said, okay, we have uh, made a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, uh, you, the Sanhedrin, petition the commander of the tribune to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about the case, and we are ready to kill him when he gets here. Um, and then you get this interesting little bit of family, which you know, just sort of appears out of the blue. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. So what's n what information is not shared there? How he heard. Yeah, how does this guy hear? Many ideas? I mean, the text doesn't say. We're talking about Jews in Jerusalem. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody knows what's going on. We have at least 50 people that know about this. <laughs> we have to say it anymore. <laughs> yeah. I think he's probably got contacts amongst the Pharisees. Because you know, the family had all those kind of contacts. Yes, so the yes, Pharisaical. Yes, but, uh, but yeah. they may have known somebody who knew somebody. You know, yeah. so it's, yeah. It was a connected family, I would think. So. Yeah. And if Paul's in prison and his sister's in Jerusalem, you know, we've got family visitor rights here. So, you know, the family can go and visit. So there's, there's, there's access to this guy. And uh, so somehow uh, this not so secret uh, is, is, is discovered. And the family goes to the assistant. So we don't know. We, do, we are not told their names. Okay, we're not told their names. Um, we don't know the name of the sister. Don't know the name of the nephew. Um, we know the name of the, of the tribune, but we're not, we don't know anything else. Just uh, give us a little um, kind of family data point here in that Paul appears to have come to Jerusalem as quite a young boy hmm. at some point, and then he. ทีมรีเฟอร์ชิวเซลฟ์แอสเอฮีบรูนอตแอสเอฮีบรูนสเปรมนอตแอสเอฮีบรูนสเปรมนอตแอสเอฮีบรูนสเปรมนอตแอส
when he's writing this has, has access to this information. Paul doesn't, is not here in this conversation, so somehow Luke has access to the sister and or Paul's family and or the nep- nephew later on. Um, and then gets, gets uh, so, so Luke actually might be hanging out with the sister, right? And so the, 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 the nephew does all this, then comes home and says, this is what I said. Luke's like, okay, that's good, good, good. What else did you say? How, how, how did it happen? So Luke's got, um, so not being an eyewitness, but he's got first-hand access to all the, all the major players. Uh, and so our, our unnamed nephew then begins to say, now, now this is also interesting. If, if, if Luke is talking to him, could have named him if he wanted to, but he doesn't. Uh, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow in the pretext of wanting to know more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because there are more than 40 of them who are waiting to ambush him. And they have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they've killed him. And they are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. Alright, so the commander dismisses the young man and cautions him, do not tell anyone that you've reported this to me. Okay, now why do you think he would say that? Because he doesn't want the Jews to find out that... They come after him sooner yeah. than they thought, just right. because they know. Yep, okay. Also, what's the danger for the Tribune? Mm-hmm. What's the danger, what do you think? That there'll, there'll be an uprising against them. Okay, if if it's known that the, the Tribune knew of a plot to kill Paul and they actually managed to kill Paul, what would be the suspicion on the Tribune? He collaborated. He took a bribe. Right? So he's got to sort of, you know, one of the things is you know, keep this under wraps. I don't want anyone to know. Okay. And, uh, and then it says, then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. Uh, to go to Caesarea at night, nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to the governor, Felix. All right, so anything there that seems a bit odd in the text? Well, it's about half the garrison. It's, it's, um, yeah. Four, <laughs> it's about 500 soldiers. It's about very determined to keep this guy alive. That's right. So it's 200 plus 100 plus another 200. Yeah. And you go, there you go, what's going on here? So um, there is a... Remember when we were discussing um, different manuscripts and there's this thing called the Western Text Manuscript Collection? Anyone remember that discussion? For those that don't know the discussion, there is another body of books of Acts which uh, seems to give more information. And so this one, this one has a sort of rewrite on this section where it looks like the information was a little bit jumbled up because you get 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. But 200 spearmen are 200 soldiers. Okay. So, this one says, get ready soldiers to go to Caesarea. 100 horsemen and 200 spearmen. And he commanded that they be ready to start at the third hour of the night. And he ordered the centurions to provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him by night to Felix the governor. For he was afraid that the Jews would seize him that's Paul, and kill him, and afterwards he would incur the accusation of having taken money. So the Western text has fleshed out a little bit more detail and information on, on this, this, this little episode. Our version has half the garrison is going to go uh, 
with Paul. I was no, I mean, you know, if half the garret, if that many soldiers, however many it was, were leaving, this was not done in secret kind of thing. No, yeah. <laughs> you think he wanted to get him down to Caesarea quietly, mm -hmm. yep. he just sent him with a much smaller posse. Yeah, no, just, just stick him with ten horses and ride like, you know, the clappers. And uh, maybe he wanted to really let the let the uh, people under oath know, don't you dare? Could you're, do. not, you're not touching this guy. We're taking him. There's something. Something spooked yeah. the, cent the centurion, the tribune. Do what he did. Now, how many soldiers are living inside the uh, Antonia fortress? Where's most of the actual tenth legion camped? Is it outside of the fortress, northward? It's just here. There's actually a um, there's a little restaurant called uh, Vesave. Any, anyone seen it as you walk past Jeff Gate? Anyone been to it? Yeah. Yep. When you go up there, there's a little um, bollard about that tall, and it's written in Latin that says, "This is the headquarters of the Tenth Roman Legion." <laughs> so it, it tells us that the the Tenth Roman Legion is actually camped up here in in King Herod's palace. They've taken over. Uh, this this section and uh, and this is where they're they're stationed and um, so you have a detachment here you've got a detachment down in uh, the Antonio fortress the Antonio fortress is as large to have a thousand and they're also outside so they've actually got so the horses aren't aren't here there's no possible way okay so you've got them dispersed around the place so he's got to pull soldiers from all over the place it was also probably one of the reasons why when the Jews did have their rebellion, it was a lot easier to, to knock off the, the soldiers because they were dispersed. Um, but it, this is, it seems like overkill, but whatever the reason, it has spooked the commander that um, there could be a rebellion on the foot if a large number of Jews are, are wanting to get violent then maybe more might come and he could be in real trouble and uh, so he's going to uh, send them to, the, to, to Felix and he writes a letter starting with his, his name uh, Claudius Lysias to his excellency Governor Felix excellency was the name given to or the title given to Theophilus at the start of, of uh, Gospel of Luke but not in this uh, Acts Greetings. And then we get his letter. Now, how does... Uh, yeah? Excuse me, but I have to go. I have okay. to make a long walk before I reach to my guest house. Okay, well, go with God. Yes, I will. Safe journey, sir. Thanks for How do you think Luke has access to this letter? I mean, this is a Roman writing to another Roman. So how'd Luke get it then? There's possibilities that when um, he arrived at Caesarea and, was, you know, and it, was, it was read out or he was, was party to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think yeah, Luke was eager to get his hands on all this kind of stuff, mm. all, all the, um, the real documentation. Yeah, he's wanting to collect it all. We have representatives undercover in Caesarea. 
So Paul goes. Who do you think goes with him? I thought it was like he maybe was there. Yeah, probably, probably Luke goes with him. They, maybe even a few others. They used to read that letter out loud. Yes, they used to read that letter out loud. Plus, it, did, it takes them a few days to go. It, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, soldiers can travel about 20 miles. Okay, fully loaded. And so this is probably a couple of days journey uh, to Caesarea. And, uh, and while they're there, you've got time to talk. Paul might be asking, what are we doing? Where are we going? Um, and, and, and Claudius could even have said, look, this, this is what I've written. Okay, this is what I'm going to be saying. But it's definitely a public anyway. And so Luke does have either absolutely really good memory um, or he actually has a look at it. Actually, they have good reasons to take Luke. He was a physician. It's possible. Use, use. Yeah, probably. It's very possible, yeah. Luke could be running around the camp making sure everybody's well. Yeah. You never know. Also, it just occurs to me, we don't think about it, but it seems like there's a lot of contact here. A lot of people talk to a lot of people in this. And that maybe they didn't mention the name of the sister and nephew simply for protect them from... Possible. It's very possible that they deliberately didn't yet yeah. use, use their names for protection of the, of the innocent, mm -hmm. particularly this document becoming public. Mm -hmm. yeah. what's, what's interesting about Bible is it includes letters from all kinds of people. Right? You've got lots of kings, uh, emperors, like Daniel chapter 4 is written by mm -hmm. Nebuchadnezzar. Right? You've got lots of people writing Bible, not just the good guys. <laughs> Okay, and so here you have Bible written by some centurion. Okay. And so this man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him. Isn't that, isn't that very brave of him? <laughs> okay. Uh, when I had learned that he was a Roman citizen. Doesn't to say like I was about to flog the guy or anything like that or any of the other faults, but no. He's, I wanted to save my own fault. Yeah. Look, look what I've done. I'm a hero. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. And I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law. And there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. And I also ordered his accusers to present you their case against him. So, Tribune's doing something very clever. And he's making sure that uh, he's covered all bases, makes himself he looks good and uh, puts all the, uh, yeah, passes the buck. And so the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them uh, during the night and brought him as far as the Antipatris. Now, I can't remember where that is, but I think I've visited it. It's just about Russia. Island. That's it, yes, I have visited it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the next day they let the cavalry go on with him and they returned to the barracks. Okay, so basically the, the, the foot soldiers get as far as one station and then return. And the cavalry arrive at Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and they handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter, most likely aloud, and asked what province he was from, learning that he was from Cilicia, which means he has to hear the case. If he, was, if he was a Roman from another, another province, he could have easily have said, nope, you go to that area and be tried by that governor. But it's in his province. So I will hear your case when your accusers get here. And then he ordered Paul to be kept under guard where? Herod's palace. So it's not in a, a dungeon. So Paul is 
as a Roman citizen, is being afforded some, some courtesies now. Okay? And uh, um, he's in Caesarea, and, we, and when we are in Caesarea and we're having a little trial, who don't we have an appearance of? Cornelius. There's a, there's a community of believers in Caesarea. And from Acts chapter 10, I'm going to assume they're still there. Ten years later. It's possible, yeah. So this Cornelius might have moved on. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. But the community. Well, he visited them on the way, his way through. So he visited them a few weeks ago. Oh, yes, that is true. I mean, is Cornelius mentioned there? No, no, no. Yeah. But he, he the brothers. Say, yeah. right. No mention of Cornelius, no, since Acts. Uh, Acts 10. Right. Yeah. So uh, we don't get any of the, the good guy, like the named people showing up. Right. I think the fact that. Um, We've got this letter recorded, and it shows that the um, Tribune is a little sort of economic with the truth in, in the sequence of things. Yes. Luke wouldn't have written it down that way. This, this is actually what, what contained in the letter. You, you wouldn't do that. Right. Because it's a. And there will probably be documentary proof that this was, in fact, what was written. And so um, Luke is just being factual about it. Yep. You wouldn't make up stories to look the truth, make the treatment look in a bad light. No, I think this is actually a real letter yeah, that's so being recorded here. I have a uh, suspicion that all the letters that are recorded in the Bible are direct quotes. That are they're not um, they're not forgeries, which is actually quite a nice thing to think about. All right, great. Well, any any other comments about our once again, the character of the Holy Spirit does not appear. Okay. But the main man does. The main man showed up, yes. But uh, there, there wasn't a, a description of, and Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, said the following things, okay, which is what you get with Stephen. But you're not, you don't get it with, with this guy right here. Uh, you get some craft. You get uh, some, 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 some very good use of... Uh, um, of, of awareness of his situation of who he's talking to. I found myself wondering what Paul felt like on that horse, being escorted by half of a Roman cohort. <laughs> yeah. The most important man in the land of Israel at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I like the fact that not only we learn the fault of the nephew, but we can ride a horse as well. That's right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, or. Paul might not be able to ride a horse and he's walking bow-legged as he walks into <laughs> And then they're like, you don't really get out much on a horse. You, no, I don't. How can you tell? <laughs> you know, you re it doesn't really say that. Yeah. I mean, horses would have been quite expensive and most uh, rabbis, oddly enough, rode donkeys. Yeah. So, uh, in, in, in rabbinical literature of the time period, you usually had... Rabbi so and so on his donkey did the following because it was a bit what cheaper. Seen as uh, military? Uh, that I don't know. I just think they were expensive animals to keep. Yeah, and, but a donkey you could shove up in, you know, tie up on a, and keep you in a smaller yeah. area. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Thank you. You're great. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. 
You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.